Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the Revive Podcast. We're excited you're here. This podcast will include our Sunday morning Sunday school class, our worship night teachings, and an occasional fun interviews. I'm excited to share with you this week's episode. Sometimes the lessons that I teach, I know I teach them to you, but I find that often the person that I think gains the most for them is, is me. Do you all ever think that, like, you're telling someone something, but really, like, you're preaching to yourself, like, you, you know that this is really for you. And you, y'all, if you all ever get a chance to teach scripture to, to your friends, or maybe a Bible study, or maybe you stand up and you deliver a message, you'll find that in your preparation, often the person that you're really speaking to is you. And, and that's really the case for today's lesson. Um, so I'm pretty much just going to preach a sermon to me, and y'all just get to hear it. Um, so because Paul is going to talk to these leaders of the church in Ephesus, and he's going to look them dead in the eyes and have this real vulnerable heart-to-heart moment um, because he's convinced he's going to die, and he's convinced he's never going to see them again. And he has this moment where he looks them all dead in the eyes and has a conversation with them. It reminds me a lot of the letter of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is probably one of my favorite books in the Bible, okay? Anybody else a big 2 Timothy fan? Okay, me and Mia. All right, and Emma, perfect. So I love 2 Timothy because Paul writes 2 Timothy on his deathbed. He's about to die. He's in prison. And right before he dies, he writes one more letter to his friend Timothy. And if you remember the story of Timothy, Timothy is a guy that he met along his journey, that he befriended, that he kind of brought underneath him, that he, he kind of showed the ropes of here's how you follow Jesus, here's how you lead a church, and he kind of raised Timothy up to be a pastor. Um, oddly enough, Timothy becomes the pastor at Ephesus, so we've now connected all the dots. And on, on his dying bed, he writes a letter to, to Timothy, and he says like, hey, I've fought the good faith, I've ran the good race, and I want you to keep going. I want you to keep following the Lord. Do not be persuaded left or the right, but keep going. And I love that image because it's almost like, have you guys ever experienced this? Don't say yes or no, but some of y'all have experienced that moment where maybe a grandparent uh, or someone you love is passing away and you're sitting with them one final time and they're, and they're charging you spiritually to follow the Lord. There's a, a charge of, of giving what you have uh, to God. What happens? You begin to like memorize all of their words, don't you? Like you live in that moment, you live in that space, and everything they say, you will forever remember. And, and you begin to tell stories of people. You're like, man, I remember when my grandma was right here, and she sat me down, and she told me three things before she went on to be with Jesus. And here's the three things she said, and I remember them forever. Some of y'all have that experience. I've saw, I, have a, I have a friend in my life who often tells me that's an experience he had with his dad right before his dad died. And his, his dad said, I wish I had done this, this, and this. And he says, those three things have changed the way I've lived my life. It's because in those powerful moments, we listen, right? So that's what we get to enter into today. And, and honestly, it's kind of like this holy moment that I'm so grateful that got written down in Scripture, because if not, we would have never heard about it, right? So we get to look at this powerful moment. Now, I want to set up the scene a little bit because last week we talked about Paul starting the church in Ephesus. Y'all remember that? So Ephesus was the home of one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of, anyone remember the name of the Greek goddess that they worshipped in Ephesus? Artemis. Artemis. Artemis, Wonder Woman, right? So Artemis, 
and they loved Artemis. And so when the church started being formed, people left the worship of Artemis and went to the worship of Jesus, which we would say is a great thing, right? Uh, we don't live in a world today where we literally leave idols and follow Jesus. Um, we're not physical idols. We leave other idols like the idolatry of self, the idolatry um, of sex, and the idolatry of relationships, insert, whatever, right? So we live in a world where we leave those types of idols. But they lived in a world where you literally left the, the wooden um, imagery that you had in your house. So what happens? Well, because, because people were turning to Jesus, the, the craftsmen in the town who made their living their nine to five was crafting and making images of Artemis. They literally made idols for a living. That's a fun little interesting tidbit. Like, what do you do for a living? Well, I make idols. Like, that's what they did. So these guys essentially are starting to go out of business because a movement of God is happening in Ephesus. This town is being uh, turned upside down. And the people who were buying the, the idols aren't there anymore. So what, what happens? Well, a revolt happens, and people get all kinds of emotional, all right? How many of y'all know that, like, when your source of income goes away, people become emotional? Like, that makes sense, right? So all of a sudden, these people who used to have money ain't got no money, and now they're mad. And who are they mad at? Paul, because Paul started a church. So Paul becomes public enemy number one. And there's this big old scene where they take two of Paul's followers, and they throw them into this giant uh, room, Kind of like a Colosseum, imagine, but like a little miniature Colosseum. And there's this giant riot. And that's what happens in Acts 19, where it's just confusion everywhere, everywhere. And they are mad at these guys and just no one has no money. Everyone's emotional. And here we are. Okay. It's kind of like college, no, no money, always emotional. But <laughs> so Paul, I love Paul. I don't really feel like Paul was ever afraid of things, which obviously he was afraid of stuff. But uh, the way that it, he's written, he just comes across very fearless. He, he essentially walks to, the, to the, the place where everyone's gathered, and he's like, let me in. Let me at him. I want to tell him about Jesus. This is an opportunity to preach. And his buddies, whose friends were like, oh, I don't think this is the right time, man. Like, everyone's mad at you. If you go in there, you're going to die. Let's, let's not go in there. And what happens is Paul ends up leaving Ephesus because um, he was going to die if he stayed. So he goes on this little journey. We ends up in this town called Miletus, which is a fun little town that's about 30 miles south of Ephesus. Now, why am I telling you geography? Well, because we're going to find out in the text we're about to read that the leaders from the church in Ephesus, they are going to travel by foot. They're going to walk 30 miles to come see Paul in Miletus. Imagine, imagine someone saying like, hey, man, I need to tell you something. It's really important. Can you walk 30 miles to me? I just, I just imagine that real quick. Like how long does it take you to walk 30 miles? Anyone, anyone have an idea? Nine and a half hours. That sounds great to me. Let's just boost it up a little bit in case we get tired. Ten and a half hours. Okay. So I'd be like, hey, what you're going to do today is you're going to walk. And when you get there, you're going to hear this riveting, riveting speech. And then you got to walk back <laughs> tomorrow. Okay, so that's what's happening. The church leaders of Ephesus are coming. That shows that they're hungry. They want to hear what Paul has to say. And they've placed a lot of emphasis on something. If you were traveling somewhere and it took you 10 hours to get there, even if it's just in a car, anyone ever been like a 10-hour road trip? Like, 
Yeah, like, what's that, Lubbock? Because <laughs> Texas is huge. And when you get there, you're like, oh, it's just going to be great. This is going to be totally worth it. You've hyped it up. And then it's just like Lubbock. But you've hyped it up, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad Kendall's not in this room. He's like a loving <laughs> big red raider. So that's what's happening, right? And that's where we enter the scene. Paul starts the church of Ephesus. You remember last, last week we talked about how he was in Ephesus for two to three years and how he preached every day? He preached a while in the synagogue, then they got, they got mad at him, kicked him out. He went to some dude's house next door called Tyrannus, and he started a Bible college, essentially, the Bible College of Tyrannus. All right, and so for three to four hours every single day, with the exception of the Sabbath, he preached the gospel to him. And what would he preach? Well, he would preach, he'd preach scripture. He'd preach from the prophets. He'd preach from the Psalms. He, he, would, he would tell stories of Jesus. Three to four hours every day. I want you to imagine that you're with Paul three to four hours every day for three years. And now you're the leaders of the church. Okay? That's the people that are coming into this room. Can y'all paint the scene? Can y'all paint the scene? Okay, three of y'all can. Thank you for that. So that's the scene. So now we're going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 17. And I think I started with verse 18 on the screen, so forgive me. But verse 17 now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them. Okay, so now here's what he's going to say. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In teaching you in public and going from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop right there before we go on to his charge. He says this thing. He says, okay, he's looking at the leaders of the church in Ephesus, the guys that he preached daily to three to four hours a day, developed relationship. I mean, imagine if you just hung out with someone for four hours every day for three years. You'd become real close to them. This is what's happening. And he's gathering those people around, those elders, the leaders of the church, and he's talking to them about his life. When we say elders, though, we're programmed to think like how Fredonia Hill does elders, Right? But how was the church in Ephesus built? Well, the, Ephesus didn't have large structures that they could fit all of these people in. So the way they had to do church was they did church in houses. There was house churches. So the elders of the leaders of the church in Ephesus, the elders, were most likely the people who ran the house churches. So if you had five house churches, you would have five people oversee each of the house church. And those people would be called the elders. So another way of saying this is he gathered all of the house church pastors together. And he gathered all of those people together and he gives this message. And he says, you guys know how I lived among you the whole time from when I was in Asia. I served the Lord with humility 
even when it was hard, with tears, and with trials, I served the Lord. Even though the Jews tried to kill me, I served the Lord. How does he start off this message? It's, there's a tone that he starts off with. He talks about his personal experience in the city of Ephesus. He says, you guys know that I've been there and I served the Lord with humility even when it was hard, even when we were crying, even when people were trying to kill me. And we were preaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's how he starts it off. There's a tone of humility in this letter. And when I say letter, this, this, uh, this speech that he's giving to these elders. Humility. Paul, at this point, is finishing his third missionary journey. He's traveled all over the world. Like, celebrity Christians weren't a thing back then. But if they were, it would have been Paul. Because he's been to every single church. Like, he's, he's gone to all of these places. He started this church. He's probably started 15, 20 churches at this point. And he's built his reputation as someone who knows the Scriptures. And the first thing that he could have done is he could have talked about his accomplishments. I kind of spoiled it earlier, but he's going to tell them that he thinks he's going to die. He could have said, remember all my accomplishments. Remember this. Remember all the things I've done. You remember how... I, you know, we, people were being healed in crazy ways. You know, think about last week's lesson when people were being healed just by the things that had touched, like the handkerchiefs that he had were, were healing people. Remember that guy that fell asleep and fell out of, of, the, of the second floor and how we were able to heal him? Yeah, that's what I did. He doesn't do that. He starts off with humility. It's so interesting. Great leaders of the faith are always grounded in humility. Great leaders of the faith are always grounded in humility. And Paul is setting an example for these leaders. You want to be a leader? Here's what it looks like. First of all, grounded in humility. Second of all, he says, through tears and trials and the Jews trying to kill me. He's saying, being a leader who's sold out after God does not mean that chaos won't follow you, but hardship will come. Being a leader who's all in for Jesus means that there will be times that you lay in your bed at night crying your eyes out. Because you're following the Lord and that doesn't always work well with culture around us. That doesn't always work well with relationships around us. There will be times where you have tears. There will be times you have trials. There will be times when you're walking through something that's just difficult and you're trying to follow the Lord in the midst of it and you're learning how to do that. That's a trial. He says, they might even have moments where you have persecution. I mean, that was the culture of Ephesus. Luckily, Nacogdoches is a little different. You know. So, this is what he's saying. This is how he starts off the letter. I keep saying letter. The speech. Look at verse 20, though. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. It's very interesting. He says, I did not stop from teaching you anything that was profitable. There's, a, there's another verse in Scripture that says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. You might have heard it before. Take that concept and apply it here. Paul could have preached on a bunch of different things. Paul could have taught anything, but he wanted to teach the things that would benefit them. He wanted to solely focus on the things that benefit them. Sometimes when we're talking to our friends, 
or we're teaching Bible studies or we're working in a small group or maybe you're in a CG, you can bring up topics about anything. What are the things that need to be profitable for that group? Paul focused on the profitable. He says he did that in the large gatherings where he could. There were small buildings at the time. But he also did it house to house. There's a pattern of going house to house, being in living rooms, being in homes. That's part of the reason why we do CGs. We want to be in each other's home. We need to break bread together. We need to pray together. I need to sit on your couch. <laughs> right? Some of y'all are in dorm rooms. Y'all don't know what couches are. There's these things. <laughs> and that's what he's doing. He says, I'm testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right here, he gives us his mission. Paul had a personal life mission. And he says it right here in the text. His mission was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's make that less Bibleese and more normal language. He wanted to tell people with passion. He wanted to passionately tell people that Jesus has died for them and that there is a life for their souls, and that God's grace is available to them. God's goodness is pouring out of his love. God's pouring out of his forgiveness is available. So he makes his life mission to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, to tell people about the good news that there's grace. That makes it his life mission. I don't want to go too far here, but it's a little tangent I like to just kind of go off on. Paul had learned to articulate his mission. And so therefore, when he's living, he's able to stay focused on his mission. There's a thing that God has asked him to do, a mission that he's about, and he stays focused with it his entire life. I think it really helps him when distractions came in and opportunities came in, and he could have chose to go to the left or to the right, but rather he stayed focused on his mission. And now I think about our life, and I think, okay, what is my mission? Do I know my own personal mission? There's a generic mission you know, ministers of reconciliation, we're, we're God's image on, on the earth. We are ambassadors of Christ. What's your own personal mission? Have you written down a personal mission statement? That sounds a little businessy. But think about it. If I were to say, Isaac, what is your mission? Like, what is your personal mission? How would you answer it? There's a challenge. And so maybe that's a question you sit with. What's my personal mission? What is the thing that God has asked me to do right now in this season of my life? God has asked me to do blank in this season of my life. That should be something we should be able to tell someone over a cup of coffee. So he says that he's been testifying to the Jews and the Greeks repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Let's just stop. He says, okay, he's got everyone around. He's just told them about their life. He's told them about his mission statement. There's humility in there. There's a tone of humility and he says, and now I'm going to go to Jerusalem. People he loves are in the room. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I don't know what's going to be there. 
But I know that God's told me through his Holy Spirit that everywhere I go, there will be trials. He uses words like imprisonment and inflictions. Uh, I feel like that's a step above how we would use the word trial. Right? We're like, I'm just going through a trial right now. Like, no, that just means your life's a little hard. This man was imprisoned and afflicted, which means he probably was beaten. It's a little different. He says, I don't know what's ahead of me, but I know that in every city I go to, I normally end up beaten and in prison, yet I'm still going to go. So interesting. You see how his mission statement pushed him past the trial, pushed him past the fear. What God has asked him to do, it was not something that he said, yeah, I think it'd be great. No worries, no problems, no struggles. No, he counted the cost. He knew that if I'm going to follow what the Holy Spirit has asked me to do, it will mean that I'm imprisoned. It will mean that I'm afflicted, that I am most likely beaten in some sort of way. Sometimes we think about following Jesus and we don't actually count the cost of following Jesus. I see people count the cost a lot of times in this way. God will highlight something in their life that they need to give up or they need to surrender. And then you'll see them deeply process that thing. You'll see them in prayer take it before the Lord. You'll see them come to a realization that they need to do it, but they're aware, and if I do this, it will mean giving up this. And they deeply process this. Paul is someone who did that. He knew that to go to Jerusalem, to go to the next town, to go to the next city meant being bruised and battered and imprisoned. But he was fully aware. He was not ignorant of what was to come. He was fully aware, yet in faith, stepped and obeyed. And I just want to take a quick second and say, if you're in that space right now where God has asked you to do something and you know what obedience in that will look like, and you know it'll mean giving up something that your heart has learned to cherish, but it's not a thing that's good for you. Perhaps you need to be like Paul and acknowledge that this, that is a truthful reality. This may happen, but I will proceed because God has asked me to do it, and God our Father knows what's best for you. I don't know if that makes sense, but I believe that sometimes God asks us to do things and we look at it and say, God, that's too hard and I've counted the cost and the cost is too high. I'm not gonna pay that. But God says count the cost and then follow in obedience because it's so much richer on the other side. Because a life following Jesus is a life worth living. That's Paul. Let's go to verse 24. So Paul has just said, well, there's no way I'm going to finish this text. Okay, so <laughs> y'all come back for part two next week. <laughs> All right, we can do this. All right, Paul has just said that he is going to Jerusalem. He'll probably die, and he's going to be imprisoned and beaten. That's the setting. Does that make sense? Are we all good with there? What does he say in verse 24? Because this is shocking. He gathers all these people around, the people that all think he's a somebody, the people that are like, he is the dude. Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord, Jesus, 
to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. There's his mission statement. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And he says again, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. We'll pause there. And he hints at it, saying, I don't know what's coming. I'm probably going to end up imprisoned. He makes an incredible statement that we're going to get back to about his life and his value, value of his life. And then he says, and I know I'm not going to see you guys again. It's one thing to say I'm going to follow Jesus. It's another thing to say I'm literally willing to die for the gospel. Often we hear that phrase and we think about martyrdom and we think about people who are willing to die for the faith and we go, man, those people are crazy and awesome. You know, I, I commend them. I say, well, well done. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear a preacher and they'll be like, are you willing to die for the gospel? Which is a good question. You should ask that. I have a different question, though. The gospel that Paul preached, Paul was willing to die for that gospel. Often when we share the gospel, we share a watered-down version of the gospel that no one would actually be willing to die for. When you preach the gospel, and when I say preach the gospel, I don't mean like up here on a stage. When you're talking to someone about Jesus, when you're talking to your friend who's in your CG, tell them about the real gospel, the one that Paul dies for, the one that every single one of the disciples is murdered for. The one that countless upon countless of countless people gave their life for. The one that Stephen was stoned for in Acts chapter 7. Preach that gospel. Tell about that Jesus. That would be my challenge to you in that. But what does he say? He's so humble. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord. Paul was somebody. He had a reputation. But he emphasized the gospel more than he emphasized his reputation. Do y'all see that? I really wanted to take just a couple minutes. Um, to talk about two quick things. There's a phrase that this guy named Count Zindendorf, which is a fun name, he he, he coined, and it goes like this, preach the gospel, die, and then be forgotten, which you might hear, and you're like, well, that's a little intense, but it's so interesting. Mankind will one day die. We will, we will one day pass away from this earth. You can go through scriptures after scriptures, and we're not out of time today, but you can go through scripture after scripture, and mankind passes away. And if I were to ask you, hey, name your great-grandfather's first name, could you do it? Some of y'all could. Some of y'all could. Some of y'all, I can't. I just called him Paul. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know his actual name. And furthermore, could you name his grandfather by name? So what's the point I'm getting at? Eventually, our time on this earth will come to an end. And we will eventually be forgotten. What lasts? The things that are eternal are the things that last. 
The things like sharing the gospel, the things like loving your enemy, the things like caring for someone when no one saw it, the things that the Spirit prompts you to do, loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, loving your neighbor as yourself, the things like worshiping the Lord with all that you have. Those are the things that are eternal. When that quote, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten, it reminds me of Paul. Now, we have the scripture, and so he's remembered, but he was focused on sharing the gospel, and that was the main focus of him. He wanted to tell people about Jesus. You see, I think we often emphasize the wrong part of that sentence. We understand we're all going to die, and we understand that we should tell people about the gospel, but the whole be forgotten thing, we said, no, no, let's erase that. Be remembered. Never be forgotten. And in a world that is all about hyping us up, we have a, a culture where you can become somebody so quickly, whether that be on Instagram or whether that just be you can stand up in a room and make a name for yourself. You can literally create platforms for you if you want. If you wanted to go and create a podcast, you could create a podcast. You can create a platform. But you see in the life of Paul, he's so much more content with talking more about the message of the gospel than he was about the platform. Paul had the biggest platform in the church at the time. He was the guy that if he, he showed up and said, we need to talk to any of the pastors, they say, yes, sir, and come and talk to him. Right? It's like if Billy Graham were to sit down and say, hey, Kendall, we need to talk. Kendall goes, yes, yeah, what do you need to say? Like, it's the same principle. But Paul, rather than leveraging his platform, is about the gospel. And I want us to be people that are not interested in growing, growing our platform, growing our influence, growing our name, creating a brand for us. I want, to, I want us to be so far from that but rather model Paul, who gathers around the dear friends that he loved, the ones that he spent so much time with, not people who didn't know their name, but people that he loved, and he gathered them around, and he told them that he had a mission of testifying the gospel of God. He told them that in humility, God's given me the opportunity to do this. And he says, but what's more valuable is Jesus, not my life. And I want you all to have the same perspective. That's what he says to his friends. He did not grow his platform, but he refocused people's attention on the mission. He refocused people's attention on God. And in, in a world where we are incredibly distracted, my prayer for you this morning is that God would take your mind and refocus it not on growing an image of ourselves, but creating a love and a passion for the mission that God's given you. There's a mission that God's given you on this earth. Ask God, what, what are you asking me to do in this season of my life? And go all in on that. Make sure it aligns with scripture. Seek out counsel of your friends. Say, I think God's asking me to do this. What do you think? Nail that down. Then go all in on that. And don't waste time trying to create and craft this image of how other people perceive you to be. What other people think about you creating this platform. Paul didn't care about that at all. He gathered his homies together, told them to love Jesus. That's what he did. I mean, that's, that's what Paul did. And I just would encourage you so much. Please don't try to grow your platform. Don't try to make a name for yourself. Don't try to be like, well, 
do you know such and such? Well, of course they know, because that's who, you know, they know my name. No. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, and I'll end here. But he says that each one of you, uh, actually, put it on the screen, yeah. He says, live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Don't try to make a big name for yourself. Just serve the Lord. Work quietly. Live a quiet life. Where people aren't banging down your door wanting to have all your advice all the time. You're just following Jesus. You're doing what he's asked you to do. And see what happens from there. Sometimes God will grow that platform. Sometimes he'll give you opportunities to share things with people. Other times, God just wants to recenter our heart that he is the prize, not the platform. But our brains are just trained to think that the platform is the prize. He's the prize. So come back next week and we'll finish chapter 20. Uh, spoiler, Paul's got some more things to say to the Ephesian elders. Let's pray. God, I pray that in this room we are people who are more concerned with the mission that you've given us and the prize of being in your family than we are with growing our name, growing our reputation. God, at times, I think all of us in this room have wasted, and that's a good word, wasted, too much energy on trying to grow our reputation. God, may we be focused on the mission and not be distracted left or right. Guide us. And I pray for the person in the room that says, okay, God has a mission for me. I have no idea what that is. God, as they spend time with you, will you reveal that to them? And until they have any specificity, will you remind them of the generic one of loving you and loving their neighbor and, and telling people about you and worshiping you with our whole heart? You guide us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.